Good evening. Good evening. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, here we are again, gathered in your name. You brought us together, Lord, all your work. And now we get to open the treasure of the church, the word of God. And Father, we would ask that you would open our spiritual eyes and ears, our hearts and our minds, to receive all that you would have for us tonight. We welcome the Holy Spirit, the author of this book, the spiritual author of this book, to help us to understand. And Father, may we glorify you in all we do tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so let's describe how we define the Bible in this class together. The Bible is one, rooted in, rooted in history with Jesus Christ as the hero. Great. And our review is over for tonight. Okay. <laughs> well, it's me. So you know there's going to be a lot of reading, so that microphone's going to be floating around. Otherwise, you're going to have to listen to me. So grab that microphone. In Isaiah's prophecy, we read about the coming Messiah. First up. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Thank you. Centuries later, when Jesus was in the synagogue, he read this very passage from the scroll of Isaiah about himself. Who would like to read that? The Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Thank you. In Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, what did he omit from Isaiah's prophecy? What did he omit from Isaiah's prophecy? The day of vengeance of our God. Jesus is actually telling us where we are in the redemptive story. And the omission, the day of vengeance of our God is yet to come. So where are we now? We are in the age of grace when all are invited into the kingdom of God. And this speaks to the mission of the church. Along with the drawing of the Holy Spirit, we offer our testimonies, both in word and deed, to accomplish this mission. So let's review the kingdom of God. Presently, the kingdom of God exists as the reign of God. Christ established this in his first coming, and it exists in the church. We're the ones that call him king. Therefore, there's a kingdom, which is both visible, invisible, 
and spiritual. So it requires faith. The second part of the prophecy, when the day of vengeance of our Lord is complete, Jesus will establish the realm of God, which will be visible and physical. Notice, both advents of the kingdom of God, first his reign, then the realm, are tied to the two comings of Jesus Christ. If I were among the religious leaders in Jesus' day, I would be looking for all of Isaiah's prophecy to be fulfilled in one coming of the Messiah. Jesus had quite a task to re-educate them into understanding the mission of his first coming. They were not looking for a suffering Messiah. Jesus' first mission was to make a way for sinful humanity to be in right relationship with God. And the only way this could be accomplished was the offering of the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God. There was no box in their head to understand this concept. This was not how they understood the prophecies. So their thinking and expectations had to be altered in two radical ways. First, their Messiah would suffer and die a common criminal's death. And second, it would not be until a second coming that the physical and visible Messianic kingdom would be established. Now, just as the religious leaders in Jesus' day had an expectation of the coming Messiah based on their understanding of Scripture, we too have an expectation of the returning Messiah based on our understanding of Scripture. In casket empty study, we have finally come to the book of Revelation, and our study covers this book in two lessons. Tonight, we look at Jesus as he is today. Somebody please read this. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God right, God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else in this world or in the world to come. And God has put all things under the authority of Christ. And he gave him this authority for the benefit of the church. Thank you. Next week, we'll look at the glorious return when the day of the Lord's vengeance is complete. Evil will be condemned forever, and the new heaven and earth will be established. In the terminology of this course, when everything is redeemed. So it's time for our first discussion question. And we're going to do the discussion questions two different times tonight. The first one I'm going to ask that you take a look at the questions for reflection. There were six of them, and it really covers our passages when we look at Christ. Since the application had to do with talking about our own church community, I wanted to give you a separate time to talk about that, and hopefully we can share our thoughts about that. So take 15 minutes and... Let's talk about some of our pre-work. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to hear all that wonderful chatter and the books and Bibles open. It's terrific. So let's talk about the Apostle John, the human author of this book. He went from being a fisherman to a disciple of the Messiah, one of the 12 
in Jesus' inner circle. He saw firsthand Jesus perform miracles. He was at the supper. He witnessed Jesus' death, saw the resurrected Jesus, and then he watched Jesus return to heaven. The first apostle who was martyred was his brother James. This happened really early in church history, and it's recorded in Acts. Shortly after this, Nero, under Nero, Peter and Paul were ex executed. And according to church tradition, the remaining apostles were all martyred. John was the last survivor of the group. And now where, where is he? He's exiled. Patmos. On an isolated isle of Patmos, hundreds of miles from his home. Why is he there? He tells us. He tells us in Revelation 1.9, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was human, and humans get discouraged. Notice how Jesus encouraged his beloved friend with his presence as he is now. Then he asked John to write down what he saw to encourage his beloved bride, the church. So Revelation 1-2, John says, John faithfully reported the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, everything he saw. Which bring us, brings us to our big idea for tonight. The revelation of Jesus encourages the church. The title revelation comes from the Greek apocalypse, and it means unveiling. Palmer, our author, states, revelation pulls back the veil and allows us to see a single extended vision of God. That's what we're looking at in the heavenly sanctuary. In Revelation, we see the Lord enthroned. He's worshiped in beautiful holiness. He's surrounded by the heavenly host, and he, then he's surrounded by the innumerable multitude of the redeemed from every nation on earth. You know what we see? God is in control. Revelation depicts the end of the present age and the coming future kingdoms through symbols, images, and numbers. I want to talk about the symbolism of Revelation. And I think, once again, our author Palmer explains it well. As the exalted Son of Man, Jesus is releasing a measured wrath in the world. At the same time, he is gathering a people for himself. So we have judgment and repentance going on at the same time. The full extent of his wrath is graciously delayed so that the nations will repent. We, the church, are bearing witness of God's salvation, present tense, making the gospel known to the nations. The pattern of measured wrath is repeated in a series of judgments released through seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. At the end of each series, there is given a depiction of a large multitude of the newly redeemed. The kingdom of God is growing. And this is a key motivation revealed throughout the whole redemptive story, the whole story. Now, Palmer then makes a connection to the Old Testament. 
The imagery in Revelation reminds us of, of how God's series of judgments, the 10 plagues, upon Egypt ends with a multitude of the redeemed at the Exodus. The symbolism in this, in this section of Revelation is deeply rooted in Scripture and should not be recast in terms of modern concepts that would have been meaningless to the original audience. Scholars are beginning to believe and saying the original audience would have understood Revelation as is. So we need to be careful. Because what's the danger of us doing this? We miss the gift of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus encourages the church. And how are we encouraged? We see Jesus as he is today. The whole church agrees that Christ's kingdom will be brought to fulfillment all across Christendom. However, opinions differ regarding the road that leads here. And I understand Neil touched on this just a little bit. We're going to look at this from the EFCA convictions. We're part of that uh, group. Some believe that rather than the return of Christ being a single event that ushers in the new heaven and earth, Christ first inaugurates an intermediate kingdom. It's between the present age and eternity. In this intermediate kingdom, Christ's identity as Lord and King will be publicly vindicated on earth. And they base this on Revelation 21 through 10. The period of earthly blessing under Christ's rule is known as the millennium. Now, here are the three interpretations. Some understand Christ will return before this intermediate kingdom is realized, and this is referred to as premillennialism. Christ returns, he is vindicated on earth, and he rules for 1,000 years over this intermediate kingdom. But others believe that through the work of the Holy Spirit, along with the preaching of the church and the gospel, from the church of the gospel, many will come to Christ and the world will dramatically improve through transformation. Then Christ will return. This is re referred to as post-millennialism. Now, in the 18th century in America, during the Great Awakening, imagine the spirit moving as he did through the country. Jonathan Edwards who was a renowned evangelical pastor and theologian, took the position of post-millennialism. And that lasted well into the 19th century. The church was very hopeful about what it was doing. You see, our context influences our interpretations. The third view is called amillennialism and is the most common view held throughout church history. Did anybody know that? <laughs> this view understands Christ's rule as active in the present age. When Christ returns, he will immediately usher in the new heaven and earth. Since there's no intermediate millennial kingdom of Christ, we refer to this as amillennialism. Now, when you place an A before a word, you negate it. So all of us in here believe in God, we're theists. Put an A in front of it, atheist, we don't believe in God. Honestly, I haven't even scratched the surface here, and I'll tell you why. There are so many facets to each view. There's nuances and qualifiers, and as I just explained, there hasn't been a consistent view throughout church history. 30 years ago, 
I only heard premillennialism taught and preached. I never heard of the other two positions. In the last 15 years, however, I have noticed a backing off from requiring a position be declared in a statement of faith. So let's take a look at what the EFCA says. This is from their book of convictions. In light of our distinctive ethos in the EFCA of uniting around the central doctrines of our faith, in 2019, we chose to eliminate premillennialism as a required doctrinal position within our movement. We welcome those with their various positions on this issue who also affirm the entire truthfulness of scripture and share our central theological convictions. We affirm simply and confidently that Christ will bring his kingdom to fulfillment when he comes personally, bodily, and in glory. Now, I'd like to give you the background for how they came to the statement. First, a survey of church history reveals that all three of these positions have been held not only in the church, but also in our own tradition, the evangelical tradition. I learned premillennialism. In the 18th and 17th century, it was postmillennialism. I went to an evangelical seminary and learned about amillennialism. So that's number one. It's right in our own uh, um, tradition. Now, I think this is fascinating. Number two, the millennial issue has not been defined in any major creed or confessional statement of the church. And the church creeds began to develop in the late second century, which is really early. Creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. All of Christendom holds to these creeds. And nowhere do we see any mention of this millennial kingdom. Third, Justin Martyr, tell me that's not an unfortunate name for a Christian, okay, was one of the earliest Christian apologists, and they are the defenders of our faith. He lived in the mid-second century, so he also lived early. He did believe in a millennial reign of Christ on earth, but he did not make it a position or a criterion for orthodoxy. In other words, it was not necessary to write belief. And here's his reasoning, quote, many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. He was allowing for disagreements on the non-essentials of the faith. Even our own statement, we welcome those with various positions on the issue who also affirm the entire truthfulness of Scripture and share our central theological positions. These various positions should not disrupt the unity of the church. In John 17, Jesus prays for the church, not just the early church. He prayed for everyone in this room. Could somebody please read this? It's right there in Scripture. I love it. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me because of their testimony. Thank you. And Jesus is praying in this prayer for our unity. Thank you. Two key points about the unity of the church. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about being united in Christ. This is not a human idea. It's a position in Christ. Our unity is a position in Christ. And two, based on the scripture, our unity impacts 
our testimony to the world, right? That they may be one and the world will believe, Father, that you sent me. Now, this was a lot. So why not take maybe one or two minutes to maybe stretch around and we'll come back and we'll talk about a whole lot more information. But just to give you a, just a second to get up and stretch and maybe talk about this for a little bit. Well, thank you. I hope that helped because we have a lot more information to talk about, okay? Our study states, Revelation is not primarily a book about the end times, but about Jesus Christ. However, it is located on our timeline under yet to come. And in this period, it talks about the end of the present age. It is tempting to see current events and perhaps interpret them as signs of the end of the times. In fact, although the last days began at Pentecost, we're never given the time of Christ's return. We know we're in the last days, but we don't know how long this age will last. Number one, Jesus tells us explicitly that only the Father knows the time. So let's read the words. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And says, you don't know when they will happen, stay alert and keep watch. Thank you. So this would not make a good discussion question. Based on your knowledge of scripture, debate when the Lord's coming back. Correct? Okay, good. But what does he tell us to do? He tells us to be alert and be ready. So be prepared. Because you don't know what day the Lord, your Lord, is coming. Know this: a homeowner who knew exactly when a burglar was coming would stay alert and not permit the house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Thank you. And third, he gave us a mission. Now, this passage, the next one we're going to read, is one of the foundational passages for the, the Academy's existence. Who would like to read this? Or in the language of New City Church, to find and follow Jesus and to help others to find and follow Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to go back one more time to the prayer in John 17. Remember, this is the Lord making intercession for the church right before he dies. And the reason I want to do it, I want to turn our attention to our Savior's heart and his motivation. Would somebody please read John 17, 12? Thank you. Uh, during my time here, I have kept them safe. I guarded them so that not one was lost. And now I am coming to you. I have told them many things while I was with them so they would be filled with joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Thank you. Jesus knows. He knows he left us in the world that's hostile to his church because they're hostile to him. But Peter tells us the reason for his delay in returning. 
must not forget, dear friends, that a day like a thousand years is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to return, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to perish, so he is giving more time for everyone to repent. Thank you. This is the heart of our Lord. He does not want anyone to perish. Remember, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, even when we, when we were still his enemies. That's our Lord. So our present age continues. Now, I am not speaking of universalism here, where everyone will be saved. Even though this is God's heart and his will is perfect, he allows, through his permissive will, our choice to reject him. But he has been consistent throughout the story, right? Even when he uses difficult, difficult means, such as judgment and suffering, to bring about repentance. This is God's heart and the primary motivation for the redemptive story continuing. He does not want anyone to perish. So, just as the apostle John needed encouragement, Jesus knows the church needs to be encouraged also. And this is one of the reasons why we have the book of Revelation. Jesus pulls back the veil to show us who he is today because the revelation of Jesus encourages the church. Revelation 119 is seen by many scholars as a summary outline of the entire book. Right therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. What you have seen is the vision of Christ described in chapter 1, the first 18 verses. You looked at these verses in your pre-work this week, and they, they were the subject of our first reflection question. What is now refers to the current state of the churches in chapter 2 and 3, current being the first century churches when the book was written. What will take place later refers to the rest of the book, chapters 4 to 22. Now, before we talk about the seven churches in Revelation, we have the opportunity to talk about our own church. In our second discussion question, we, in applying God's word, we were asked to look at our church in view of how God looked at the other churches. So it's a safe place. You get to speak to each other in your group. Afterwards, I will ask if anybody wants to share. But it's our body of New City talking about New City. Good evening. Okay. <laughs> Would anybody be willing to share how New City is shining the life and light of the gospel into the darkness of our community? Any thoughts? Say please. Thank you, Herb. Herb talked about Ashley Place, how we're there in the community and overcoming the obstacle of language to work, a launching point even to the surrounding community. Thank you very much. Thank you. Anyone else? I hope these are encouraging. Yes. We teach the word of God. Thank you. I'll pay you later. <laughs> yes, Liam. Uh, I picked up on the 
Yes. Thank you. Could you say that again nice and loud for us? Healthy people find and follow Jesus. Thank you, Liam. Thank you. Anyone else? One of the first things our group pointed out was the worship music on Sunday mornings mm. often brings a, a light into their life and, and certain it, it, it brightens the day of others. Thank you, Bill. Anyone else? Thank you. So we have humble leadership. Oh, I like that. Okay. We have humble leadership. Thank you. These are great. I hope they're encouraging. Anyone else? Yes. I think uh, the way we care for the people that come here you know, through the different avenues, um, through the care ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a strong emphasis on prayer and um, praying with people, you know, while they're going through times and sharing those requests and those praise reports through, um, you know, our counseling services, through, you know, addressing mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. um, we have a visitation team that goes and visits people that, maybe don't have a rider or a shut-in. So just many facets of that. I think we are, you know, making a lot of strides with um, caring for people well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Boy, and you're, what I like about your answers are you're picking up different facets of all things. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. Okay. The Lord has come and has done a report card on New City. What, is he, what does he recognize as good about our church? We teach and preach truth. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I'm so glad he's in this class. Yes. Thank you. I came to this church 41 years ago. Wow. And... Jim Callum, at the time, asked me to stand up and say something in front of the congregation, and I was like, me? Why? But the only thing I could think of was this church is all about love. And this is 40 years ago. And I had specific examples from the kids that I taught in Sunday school to Harold Bogart, you know, on and on. And I would say it's the same today. Thank I you. think there is, and I've brought several people to the church, and the response is always the same. The people are so nice. And I th I'm sure if they dug deeper, they would come to the word love. But that is the spirit in this church. Thank you so much. Should we go home now? It's perfect. <laughs> Thank you. That was perfect. Anyone else? Okay, so what we would he rebuke us for? 
Yes, ma'am. Thank you. I probably shouldn't speak up and say. Um, so things I might notice would be inconsistent attendance, um, maybe inconsistent tithing, um, uh, the lack of volunteering for the long list of many service opportunities that they are. Thank you. Everything that could be, it, it wasn't abstract. It was great and practical. Thank you. Anyone else? We talked about, um, you know, we are a product of the culture we are in, um, and we are in South Charlotte, and Char South Charlotte is a very comfortable place. We we have a lot, um, especially when we compare ourselves to the global church, um, but even within America, we have a lot, and you know, we can sit very comfortably in that, and sometimes. We need, I, you know, I think Jesus would, would push us to step out of that comfort, comfort and step out of that complacency um, for the gospel and say, okay, you're learning truth. Now go and take it. Yes. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you. These are wonderful answers. Anyone else? You can send them over to Matthews. <laughs> So there's a youth group, there's certain kids that uh, don't really like to learn a lot. They just mess around, very lukewarm, uh, just don't really want to learn anything. Uh, just play around all uh, afternoon, and then when it's time to leave, they leave. We're coming to that church. Thank you very much. Thank you, Liam. Holy Spirit, moving anybody to speak? Okay, wonderful answers. And lastly, what does Jesus tell us or promise? What does Jesus promise us? What promises does he make? You'll eat from the tree of life. You'll eat from the tree of life. Thank you, Lisa. Anyone else? He's all that we need, which is the point of this lesson. Thank you. And it, yes. And he promises that as we take steps of faith, he will be with us always. Oh, thank you, Jeff. He will be with us always to the end of the age. Thank you, Jeff. Anyone else? There's a lot of great promises that I really want to embrace, but when I was reading it this time, I also recognized in 319 that he promises a discipline. And that's not always something I embrace, but that's also one of his promises, and at times we really need it. Yes. We're going to see that church too tonight. Thank you, Bill. Anyone else? I really want to thank you all. Thank you so much for sharing, and you brought a lot to the conversation. Thank you. Well, in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus addresses seven churches. These are literal, literal churches. They're real. They're existing 
in the early church. Geographically, they form a circle and they are located north and east of Patmos. The issues addressed within these churches are not unique to the particular churches or their time. We see Jesus finds what he finds commendable in his church and what he rebukes. So let's do a survey of the seven churches. You're going to see a pattern here in Ephesus. Ephesus has remained sound in doctrine, has resisted false teaching and practice, and they work tirelessly for the Lord. So far, so good? Okay. But they've lost their first love. They lost their love for Jesus and each other. Jesus tells them this, remember, remember, and then repent. Second church, Smyrna. Smyrna is not rebuked. It is a persecuted church that has lost its material wealth of the world, but it's storing riches in heaven. Jesus tells them their persecution will intensify. Keeping their faith even to death produces a crown of life. They will not experience the second death. Now watch this. When Jesus tells them who he is, he tells them just what they need to hear. I am the first and the last, he tells them, the one who died and came to life. That's what that church needed to hear. Pergamum, it's a center for pagan worship. I wonder what living in a society like that must be like. Hmm. Okay, he tells this church he has a sharp two-edged sword. What is that? What's the sharp two-edged sword? The word, yes, he has the word. He commends those who remain faithful in this hostile environment. And Jesus says, where Satan dwells. The problem in this church is compromise. By eating foods, sacrificed to idols, and committing immorality. Jesus simply says, repent. God's truth needs to guide them. Not ever-changing intellectual and cultural trends. God's truth, right? The two-edged sword. If they don't deal with the heretics, the one with the two-edged sword will. Thyatira is commended for loving, serving, and holding their faith. But some in the church tolerate Jezebel, who causes Christians to stumble. Now, honestly, we don't really know who Jezebel is. The original Jezebel in the Old Testament was queen of Israel, and she worshipped many idols. So perhaps the thinking is maybe this Jezebel is a false prophet leading the church to sin. Because of God's mercy, he has given time for this Jezebel to repent. But she's refused to do so. So he'll bring judgment on Jezebel and discipline those who follow her ways. Why? The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. Now, there are still people in this church who do not follow the false teaching. So Jesus encourages them to persevere until he returns. The next one, Sardis. Sardis receives no praise. Jesus is not impressed with their reputation for being alive. From God's perspective, the one that counts, it's a dead church, a hollow shell. He tells them, wake up. Expect my return. 
Saurus has lost her focus. He continues his instructions. Strengthen what is dying. Remember what you have received and heard, then repent. Now, now remember, our Lord has defeated death, and he brings life out of death. If this church obeys, they can return to the once vibrant life of their church. That's our Lord. Philadelphia is the second church that does not receive any rebuke. They receive generous praise from Jesus. He commends them for them having spiritual strength despite the little power they possess in the world. He encourages them to hold fast to what they have until he returns. And then we come to number seven, Laodicea. Just as Sardis is a dead church and gets no praise, neither does the lukewarm church. The church is lukewarm, not hot or cold, and Jesus says, I can spit you out. Now they haven't totally abandoned their faith. They have lost their passion and commitment. They have material wealth, but spiritual poverty. They need to repent, be earnest, and fervent in spirit. Now there's a really popular verse in here, Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This passage has been used in evangelism. But it's really not the true context because Jesus is talking to believers, not non-believers, right? So it's a gentle offer to these believers to reestablish close relationship with Jesus. He stands patiently outside the door of personal fellowship, eager to come in again, but their condition has shut him out. Yet, he will willingly return if they want him. He will return to the lukewarm church and he will revive the dead church. That's our Lord. None of the circumstances and behaviors of these churches is foreign to the church today. These two chapters continue to be relevant. Now in chapter four, the scene shifts from the churches on earth to the throne of God in heaven. And here he is worshiped as creator. Who would like to read? You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created everything, and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. Thank you. The focus shifts in from four to five, and four creator and five to the lamb, who alone is worthy to open the scroll that contains God's will. Now, Robert Mounts, in his commentary on Revelation, writes this. The worship of God for his role as creation, in creation, chapter 4, gives way to the worship of the Lamb for his work of redemption, in chapter 5. Now, the Apostle John weeps because he thinks there is no one worthy to break open the seal of the scroll to reveal God's perfect will. Now, one of the elders will say to John, Thank you. But get this. When John looks, he doesn't see the lion. John sees a lamb. 
I looked, and I saw a lamb that had been killed, but was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. Thank you. The lamb is further described as this. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that are sent out to every part of the earth. His horns speak of his perfect power and his seven eyes of unlimited wisdom and penetrating insight. As the lamb takes the scrolls, he's worshiped by the four creatures and 24 elders. They sing this new song. A new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were killed and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Thank you. Ransomed. It's the language that refers to redemption. To be redeemed, a price has to be paid. That's the ransom. And what was the ransom paid so that sinful humanity can become kingdom citizens? What was it? The blood of Christ. Last Sunday at church, we celebrated as his body, Holy Communion. Some Christians refer to this as Holy Eucharist. Eucharist means thanksgiving. We heard this cup represents his blood shed for you. We remember by giving thanks to the lamb who ransomed us. Earlier tonight, we learned that Jesus told the Ephesian church, the one who had lost their first love, what did he tell them to do? Remember. That's what we were doing as a church body last Sunday. We remembered what Christ paid for us. And according to this verse, who's ransomed? What do you see here? Yes. The one who was offered as a ransom is the seed of Abraham. And he fulfills the promise in Genesis 12.3. I told you I was going to say this verse every week, right? 12.3. All families of the earth will be blessed through you. And we see this here from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. That's fulfillment. Now let's continue with this heavenly scene in chapter 5. Come, God's kingdom and his priests, and they will reign on the earth. Thank you. I like the way the commentator Robert Mouse explains this verse. What, what was promised to the Israelites at Sinai in Exodus 19.6, and you will be to me a kingdom, a priest, my holy nation, is fulfilled in the establishment of the church through the death of Christ. Corporately, believers are a kingdom, and individually, we are a priest to God. Both of these terms are active. In eternity, we're going to be active. They're active in meaning. As a kingdom, we will reign. And as priests, we serve. By his death, Jesus established his church as a kingdom of priests in the service of our God. What a glorious future for the church. 
we are with our Redeemer and active, reigning and serving. You see, the revelation of Jesus encourages the church. So our last discussion question for the night is, based on your study this week, you're you're talking tonight, and some of this teaching, do you have a better understanding of why the book of Revelation is included in the redemptive story? And would you share your thoughts at your table? Okay, so we're at the last book of the redemptive story. So your puzzles are all complete now, right? All fitting in. Wonderful. Chapter 7 is an interlude in the midst of the judgments. This week we looked at verses 9 through 17. Here is a vision of the future eternal blessedness for all believers. Now that they are in the presence of God, they realize the reward of their perseverance, remaining faithful. Now one of the elders asks, who are the ones in the white robes and where did they come from? Well, these are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. They stand before God in righteousness because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. God blesses them with protection. And wait till you hear this. Freedom from want. All their desires are fulfilled. The Lamb, their shepherd, will lead them to springs of living water. And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, Jesus promised the same to the Samaritan woman at the well. Somebody please read this. But the water I give them Thank you. And again, he promises this to us. If you believe in me, come and drink. For the scriptures declare that rivers of living water will flow out from within. Thank you. So Revelation 17, 7, 16 states, they will never again be hungry or thirsty. This speaks to the ultimate satisfaction of our spiritual longing. Mount says, as a fresh spring in a semi-arid land would be to a shepherd and his flock, so will the eternal presence of God to redeem humanity in their longing for spiritual wholeness. That's our future. Now, Mount concludes, the purpose of the vision is to grant, grant a glimpse of eternal blessedness to those about the, to enter the world's darkest hour. Here John is privileged to look beyond this age to the hour of ultimate triumph. Earlier in John's life, he may have experienced something similar to this as he walked with Jesus. First, his disciples learn about Jesus and his future suffering. What do we see here? Jesus began to tell them that he, the Son of Man, would suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the leaders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed 
and three days later, he would rise again. Thank you. And after speaking about his future suffering, look what he does. Thank you. John was one of the three apostles who witnessed the transfiguration. Now he's given a vision of one of the most exalted portrayals of heaven found in scripture, Revelation 7. So let's go back to Revelation 1.1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him concerning the events that will happen soon. An angel was sent to God's servant John so that John would share the revelation with God's other servants. Why? Because the revelation of Jesus encourages the church. Now, at this point, I will close in prayer, but tonight, I would like us all to read together Psalm 100, and if you are able, will you please stand so that we could read this together? Thank you. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his courts with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his holy name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Amen? Amen. Thank you.